Mayo Clinic presents the Always On EM podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Bellamconda. Hello, and welcome to the Always On EM podcast. This is the December episode. It happens to be the finale of our first year of recording. And my name is Venk Bellamconda. I'm joined, as always, with my wonderful co-host, Dr. Alex Finch. We really appreciate you all for tuning in each month and helping us on this journey. I hope you enjoyed this episode as well. We have a really wonderful guest today. If you do, at the end, please don't forget to like, comment, and follow on whatever platform you're joining us on. For those of you who are new, Alex and I are two emergency physicians at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, and we love bringing you perspectives and insights of the world's experts on various topics related to emergency medicine. And today's guest is definitely a world expert. The first time I truly experienced awe of a colleague providing care for a patient was when I was finishing an overnight shift and this colleague of mine took over. Just to set the stage, it was a really tough overnight shift, and five minutes before the shift ends, a patient with really striking oropharyngeal angioedema shows up, and essentially, I'm worried they need intubation. In the few minutes before my colleague arrives, I notified one of our surgeons that I might need their help, and our anesthesiologist as well. And I was truly exhausted mentally and physically, and was thinking this patient needs the very best of me. As I stepped out of the room, my colleague rounds the corner, and he's got a coffee in one hand, and he's just a few minutes early before he shift, and he says, how can I help? And that colleague was Dr. Ben Sandifer. I was so grateful to see him. Those who don't know, he happens to be the departmental airway expert. I was blown away that my luck was, was that he was walking in to take over for me. I asked him if I could watch and observe as he took care of this patient, which he kindly agreed to. I was struck by how calm and systematic and just exceptional in all facets of care he was, including helping the resident who had been on all night work through this airway. There are only two times in my attending life where I felt truly that I was in the presence of somebody who was a standard of deviation above me. And one is when I watched Dr. Alex Finch do ECLS resuscitation. And the other is this time when I watched Dr. Ben Sandifer manage this airway. And so I'm really, really excited to have him here. If you want to know a little bit more about him, he's a graduate of Mayo Clinic Alex School of Medicine and completed emergency medicine residency at Harvard. He's been leading our airway practice ever since that time. He's a highly decorated educator with Teacher of the Year recognitions and accolades from EM and non-EM learner groups as well. He serves as Associate Residency Director of our EM residency and also leads our faculty recruitment efforts as well. Dr. Annie Sadosti, a former chair of our department, recently called him a doctor's doctor, and I think that fits him really well. Ben, welcome, welcome to the show. We are really to Kipnik with excitement about this. <laughs> thanks, Vank, and thanks, Alex. It's a it's a real pleasure to be here and be on the podcast. I've I've been a uh, a listener over the past year, and it's been just really uh, impressive to see the the um, expertise that you've been able to bring on the podcast and and sharing knowledge. And so it's a it's an honor to be here, and I I just really appreciate it. We're so excited to have you on the show. When I was looking through your incredible CV, I saw a lot of mentions of the NEAR database and angioedema. How did you get interested in and involved in these projects? 
Yeah, that's a it's uh, a great question. So yeah, the the NEAR project, which is the National Emergency Airway Registry, is really a, a multi center collaborative of uh, of airway research, and it's driven by emergency medicine. And it's now in its in its second decade. Um, it was born out of a brainchild from Ron Walls, who was at the Brigham at the time and is now led by Calvin Brown. So I was fortunate just by happenstance to train under these two uh, individuals, and they've been my mentors for years. And as I moved into Mayo Clinic, Mayo was not a near site, and we made it a near site. And so we've been uh, fortunate to be a, a member of NEAR for the past decade, and that has really opened up lots of research opportunities for me, but also for our resident physicians and our other colleagues here at Mayo. And so we've, we've had a, a very productive collaboration with NEAR. I know an area of passion and interest for you is angioedema. And so if it's okay, I'd like to start out with a case. Absolutely. So we're at a single coverage site. It's 2 a.m. You see a patient pop up on the board. They've walked in the front door. The people working at registration labeled the patient swollen lips. It's a 35-year-old female, and you walk in the room. You see that her lips are a little bit swollen, but she's sitting there and able to talk to you. People are starting to grab things like Epi, Benadryl, steroids, and somebody asks, do we need to get ready to intubate this patient? What is your response and how are you going to work through this situation? Yeah, thanks for that case. The first thing I would say is this is the kind of case that I just gravitate towards. So when I see swollen anything, uh, when it pops up on the board, I immediately go and, and look at that person. Oftentimes, even if they're not in my pot or if they're still in the waiting room, I just... So this isn't uh, a go and get coffee situation. This is not this a go is, and get okay, coffee okay. situation. I, I always arrive with coffee. Um, <laughs> so, you know, the first thing I would say uh, to the team is like, everyone just take a breath. You know, we need to stop and get a sense of exactly what we're dealing with here. Uh, it sounds like this person is coming with uh, swollen lips, but swollen lips may just be the tip of the iceberg. And so we need to do a proper assessment. As you enter the room, you just want to get a sense of your gestalt of the patient. Are they in extremis? Do they look like they're nervous? Or are they calm? They're collected. And just that kind of initial first second or two, is this person stable or are they not stable? As you enter the room and approach the patient, you're going to want to get a, an understanding if they're able to phonate. Is that... Um, uh, phonation associated with some change in their voice? Are they experiencing any strider? Um, just those first few moments of getting a sense is, is this a stable airway or is this someone in, in respiratory extremis? When you're assessing their phonation and speech, are you asking specific questions or is that just through standard conversation? Well, I'm starting with standard conversation, but I will ask the patient, do they feel like they're experiencing a change in voice? I also want to know, are they experiencing a sense of dyspnea? Have they had any drooling? Are they have any trouble with handling their secretions? So these are things that you're asking the patient historically, but you're also assessing uh, as a clinical sign as well. When you're assessing the patient with angioedema, there are a few things that you want to really just at the outset get out of the way. And, and the first is getting a sense, do I need to act on this airway right now? So is this a, a force to act situation? Most patients with angioedema will present with reasonable stability and you'll have a moment to assess their airway and, and to really get a sense of the historic factors and start to make some uh, thoughtful decisions. But occasionally people will present in true respiratory extremis. You know, they're on the verge of asphyxiation 
And in those moments, you have to act with more timeliness. So what I'm hearing is we're going to break the patient down into a force to act scenario or a I have a minute to make a decision. Let's go through the patient who we think we have a minute to make a decision. Our staff might describe the patient as having swollen lips, and we might characterize that as angioedema. Pathophysiologically, what what do we think is going on with the patient at this point? Yeah, angioedema, you know, we really should think of it as a clinical sign. You know, a lot of times we think of angioedema as a a syndrome, you know, someone's coming with angioedema, but angioedema can arise from many different processes. From a pragmatic emergency medicine thought process standpoint, we should really be thinking of it in a dichotomous fashion. One being histaminergic mediated angioedema and another being bradykinin or non-histaminergic mediated angioedema. And that's gonna have implication in terms of how we treat the patient in the emergency setting. So the histaminergic syndromes can be kind of broken further down into anaphylaxis with angioedema or patients with histaminergic angioedema, but not anaphylaxis. So pragmatically, if someone presents and we believe them to have anaphylaxis and they have associated angioedema, we know how to treat that. That person's going to get epinephrine, intramuscular 0.3 to 0.5. From a very pragmatic perspective, they can receive one to two epinephrine auto-injectors into their anterolateral thigh, depending on the size of the patient. Um, and then, of course, H1 blockade, H2 blockade, um, and deciding, are we needing to manage this patient's airway as we're treating the anaphylaxis? There's also the patient with histaminergic angioedema without anaphylaxis. So those patients, um, you may know to have a trigger. And, you know, so they've been exposed to a bee or a medication. Perhaps they know they have a a background allergy. They may have urticaria. And we know from prior data in the literature that urticaria as a clinical sign is going to lean you very much towards thinking this is histaminergic angioedema. And so for those patients, if they have life-threatening angioedema, a lot of swelling in the airway, we're again going to be administering epinephrine, 0.3 to 0.5 intramuscular. If it's not life-threatening, those patients can receive your H1 blockade, H2 blockade, steroids, um, but probably don't need epinephrine if it's not concerning swelling in the the airway or the oropharynx. Um, And then lastly, of course, is the non-histaminergic angioedema. These are oftentimes the ones that are most challenging for us in the emergency department. So these are people with either hereditary angioedema syndromes, or acquired angioedema syndromes, or most commonly, your ACE inhibitor-associated angioedema. And that's going to be by far the most common non-hispanergic angioedema that we see in the emergency department. So these people in general are not going to be having hives. Most of them are going to be on an ACE inhibitor of some sort. And, uh, and these folks are going to have a different pathophysiologic mechanism. So it's bradykinin-mediated. And uh, as a result of that, they get increased vascular permeability. They have uh, movement of fluid from the vessels into the interstitial space, and they get this submucosal and subcutaneous swelling and the androedema that we see uh, clinically. So various syndromes are leading to this clinical sign of angioedema. Uh, and depending on which syndrome we think it is, is going to have big implication on how we treat it. I frequently walk into the room and sometimes I don't know which one of these entities I'm dealing with. How am I going to rapidly break this down? And would you say that epi steroids and histamine blockade are safe to give when you don't know what's going on? 
So that's a great question, Alex. The concept of sometimes we know and sometimes we don't know is actually well borne out in the literature. We did a 10-year retrospective study of patients that came to Mayo Clinic Hospital. Uh, and in this group, we had approximately 40% of patients who we simply were not able to ascertain, do they have histaminergic or non-histaminergic syndrome? And 50% of our population followed up with an allergist. And even in the population who followed up with allergy, still 40% of them were unknown. We don't know if they're histaminergic or non-histaminergic. So pragmatically, you're thinking of this as, I know that they're histaminergic, I know that they are non-histaminergic, or I don't know. So for the histaminergic syndromes, these are going to be the ones that are associated primarily with a trigger. They may be coming with a known allergy. Urticaria is a big predictor. And so if they have any of those things, we're going to be categorically treating as we would for allergy and anaphylaxis. If it's life-threatening, we're administering epinephrine and of course the histamine blockade corticosteroids. For patients in whom we don't know we should probably be treating those as histaminergic as well because it's you know a high likelihood that they may be histaminergic. So we're gonna see if they respond. And for the patients that we truly believe to be bradykinin mediated, so these are the folks who come with isolated angioedema, uh, they are on an ACE inhibitor, they're not having evidence of hives, or perhaps they're coming and tell you that they, they have a history of hereditary angioedema or they have a history of ACE-associated angioedema. These patients are not likely to respond to epinephrine, histamine blockade, steroids. And so uh, in those patients, you're very justified to not be administering those medications. However, no one is going to fault an emergency physician who administers epinephrine or histamine blockade to someone with a life-threatening angioedema syndrome because sometimes it's just very hard to tell. So if you know it to be true that it's bradykinin associated, it's certainly reasonable to withhold those because they're unlikely to help. If you have some element of uncertainty, I think a lot of emergency physicians would be administering those things. So to summarize back, I walk in the room I'm going to check my own pulse first because there is going to be a tendency to be very concerned about this airway and I need to be at the top of my game. I'm going to initially try and assess, can I break this down into a histamine or a bradykinin mediated pathway? The bradykinin pathway is really going to be focused on isolated angioedema without evidence of hives. There may be a clear history in the chart that they have a familial angioedema syndrome. Alternatively, they might be on an ACE inhibitor. I want to talk a little bit more about timing of that ACE inhibitor initiation in just a minute. Additionally, it may be a histamine pathway. There might be a specific trigger, history of anaphylaxis. When we say non-anaphylaxis histamine mediated, are we saying mast cell degranulation disorders? Is that kind of what we're talking about or is it something different? When we're saying a non-anaphylaxis histamine mediated angioedema syndrome, it's the same pathophysiologic process. You're having mast cell degranulation, histamine-mediated increased vascular permeability, and swelling. And so what we're uh, indicating here is that they just don't have those other aspects that would make us categorize them as anaphylaxis. So they don't have associated wheezing, they don't have associated nausea or vomiting, uh, et cetera. But the underlying pathophysiologic process uh, remains the same. Most of the time, this is IgE-mediated degranulation of mast cells and basophils, histamine-mediated. But occasionally, it can be non-IgE-mediated processes, so direct mast cell degranulation as a result of drug effect. Occasionally, we can have non-IgE-mediated degranulation as a result of drug interaction with mast cells or 
NSAIDs uh, being a, a classic example of COX inhibition mediated uh, swelling as a result of other pro-inflammatory mediators. So the vast majority of the time, this is going to be related to histamine or bradykinin, but occasionally there can be other mediators at play. I want to focus then on treatment. If I think that this is an ACE inhibitor, how am I going to treat it? And was there a specific onset time of initiating the ACE inhibitor that is going to make me think that that is clearly the problem here? And for hereditary, what am I going to give this patient in the ED? Oh, this is a, a great question and a very broad one. So we'll start with the ACE inhibitor. So for patients who are initiated on ACE inhibitors, what we believe is that they're at their highest risk during the first few months of initiation of ACE inhibitor therapy. However, there are literally millions of Americans on ACE inhibitor therapy. So because of the vast number of individuals on ACE inhibitors, and unless I'm incorrect, I think it is the most commonly prescribed antihypertensive at present in terms of class of antihypertensive. Um, so even though there's a relatively low risk uh, on the order of about 0. 0.5 to 0.7%, when you have millions of people on these drugs, you're going to be seeing a good bit of angioedema. And I'll take a step back here and say that the overall risk on an ACE inhibitor is under 1%. Uh, however, patients who are black are more likely to have an associated uh, angioedema syndrome while on ACE inhibitors. So the thought um, for patients who are black is that they have a five-fold or so increase in risk of ACE-associated angioedema. Um, and so um, for uh, this patient population, um, the risk is much larger than for the population as a whole. With regard to timing and onset of angioedema after initiation of ACE, the thought is that the patients are more likely to develop an ACE-associated angioedema within the first few months. However, because so many people are on ACE inhibitors, the vast majority of people that we will see in the emergency department have been on their ACE inhibitor for a long period of time. So in our population, uh, when we did our retrospective study, over 70% of patients had been on their ACE inhibitor for more than 12 months. So the risk is greatest early on, but the patients we're seeing in the emergency department, more of those, the majority, are going to have been on their ACE for a period of years. And people have been described as having ACE-associated angioedema after being on their ACE for over two decades. So it's uh, important to know that it doesn't have to be a new onset ACE initiation. And it's also important to know that it's been described people will have ACE-associated angioedema after discontinuing their ACE inhibitor. So for a period of several mm. months afterwards, and it's, it's really unclear the pathophysiologic mechanisms of this, but it's been pretty well described. So even if someone is off their ACE, they are still at some risk of angioedema. So at the end of the day, it's a class effect associated with ACE inhibitor medications. And um, people are at risk at really any given point while they're on that medication, as well as after they discontinue it. Do ARBs count? So that is a, a very excellent question. Angiotensin receptor blockers have been associated with angioedema, but not on the order that ACE inhibitors are. So they're more on the order of 0.1%, which is more in line with the risk of angioedema in the general population. And so historically, we thought that there was a thing such as ARB-associated angioedema, but more recently, it's not been uh, as much of a, a consideration. So patients with non-life-threatening angioedema as a result of an ACE inhibitor therapy might still be considered for placement on an ARB uh, in the future. In our population, we did have 
have a few patients who presented with angioedema while on ARBs, but the pathophysiologic mechanism of that is not well elucidated. What therapies am I going to reach for if I suspect an ACE or familial? So this is a, a very hot topic question. It's something that we've seen increasingly in the emergency medicine literature. So we'll start by talking just about the hereditary syndrome. So Foremost, hereditary syndromes are pretty rare. We don't see them that much in the emergency department, but uh, for people who have hereditary syndromes, angioedema episode is always uh, something that is a, a high risk. And so while it's a rare occurrence to see in the emergency department, when that patient presents, we have to be ready and knowledgeable to be able to act. So when someone has a hereditary angioedema in general, this is because of a deficiency in the C1 esterase inhibitor which is a complement factor. And as a result of that deficiency, either because of decrease in terms of the amount or decrease in terms of the function, these folks are at risk of developing an increase in bradykinin and angioedema. So one of the foremost routes of treating hereditary angioedema episodes in the acute setting or in terms of prophylaxis is to just replace the C1 esterase inhibitor. There are pooled C1 esterase inhibitor concentrates that can be administered. There are also recombinant C1 esterase inhibitor concentrates that are derived from transgenic rabbit milk, um, of all things. And so this is a very effective therapy for someone who has hereditary angioedema and an acute episode. There are two other options for treatment of the hereditary angioedema syndromes. One is acalantide. You think about how bradykinin uh, comes about in the body. High molecular weight kininogen is cleaved by an enzyme called calicrine and bradykinin, uh, which is just a, a nine segment of amino, of amino acids. It's just a little nine segment um, nonapeptide. And so the calicrine can be inhibited by a drug called calentide. And so this has been shown to be effective in patients with hereditary angioedema. And the third option is a medication called acatabant. And acatabant is a medication that interacts with the bradykinin 2 receptor, and it's essentially just a competitive inhibitor. So it blocks the receptor that bradykinin acts on. So those are your, your big three options in terms of medications to administer. You can give them back C1 esterase inhibitor. You can inhibit the action of calicrine and so decrease bradykinin production, or you can block its action at the receptor with a cataband. So all of those are FDA approved for adult patients. The C1 esterase inhibitor concentrates are also approved for pediatric patients with hereditary angioedema syndromes and acute angioedema. ACE-associated angioedema is a bit of a different scenario. So theoretically, we would love to be able to give any of these medications to reverse the action of ACE-associated angioedema. However, none of these medications have been shown in studies to be effective. And these medications do come with some risk, and they're also very expensive. So the challenge is trying to determine the risk-benefit ratio in a patient with ACE-associated angioedema and these medications that we have available to treat hereditary angioedema. With ACE inhibitor-associated angioedema, all three of these medications have in some fashion been studied, but not in a highly rigorous fashion. Most of what you'll find in the literature is limited to case series, case reports. Um, there are a few 
randomized studies involving a calentide and a catabant. However, to date, the data doesn't support the use of these medications in ACE-associated angioedema syndromes. And our two emergency medicine clinical practice statements that relate to ACE-associated angioedema, one being from Society of Academic Emergency Medicine, SAEM, and the other being from AAEM more recently, both state that the data does not support utilizing these medications in ACE-associated syndromes. The most important thing that we can do when someone comes to the emergency department with ACE inhibitor-associated angioedema is one, manage their airway in expert fashion, and two, discontinue their ACE inhibitor. Ben, now when I was a resident, I remember we gave FFP for angioedema all the time, but I don't see that anymore. Can you help me understand what's happened to that practice? Yeah, Vank, that's a, that's a great question. So when I was a resident as well, this is, you know, 10 to 15 years ago, we also gave FFP for patients who came with angioedema. Um, and another one that's been increasingly uh, discussed in the literature and also just clinically in our practices should we be giving TXA, which has kind of classically been utilized as a prophylactic medication for patients with angioedema syndromes. We'll start first with FFP. So FFP for patients with hereditary angioedema syndromes has real theoretic benefit because it has inclusive in it C1 esterase inhibitor. Now the challenge is FFP also has a lot of other things that we might not want. So high molecular weight kininogen, um, a lot of the precursors of bradykinin are also in there. So there's a theoretic possibility that we could worsen the angioedema by giving the FFP. The hereditary angioedema clinical practice statements which suggest that if you're in a low resource area where you don't have access to C1 esterase inhibitor con concentrate or a calentide or a catabant, you can consider giving FFP as treatment for hereditary angioedema syndromes. We've used it for many years in patients with ACE-associated angioedema. However, the data supporting its use is essentially lacking and non-existent. Most of what you'll find in the literature are case reports and case series. And if you think about the natural course of angioedema, it's self-limited. So patients will receive a medication and they'll get better. And we, you know, kind of think about that as well. Okay, this this is what we did. The patient got better. And so you'll see a case report or two or even a case series of that, but it's not been rigorously studied. We've not studied it head to head with placebo or with other medications. And so essentially the, the data to support its use is lacking. And administering a pooled blood product such as FFP does come with certain risks. So it's not something I utilize in my practice. Uh, at the end of the day, you just want to be sure that you're expertly taking care of their airway, you're discontinuing their ACE inhibitor, and why add additional treatments that are not evidence-based? The question of TXA is another one altogether. So TXA has been utilized as a prophylactic medication for patients with hereditary angioedema syndromes. As an antifibrinolytic, the thought is that it decreases activation of factor 12, and at the end of the day, this is going to result in less production of bradykinin uh, within, uh, within the body. It's not really used as much in, in modern times as it historically has been. Recently, we have seen some case series and case reports in the emergency medicine literature of patients coming with angioedema syndromes. They receive TXA, and they get better. Um, and the challenge with this is that it's, again, 
not compared head to head with placebo or other medications. And the natural course of patients with angioedema is they get better. And so it's not been shown in any rigorous fashion to be effective. Now, if you're going to choose a medication to give a patient that has not been shown to have you know, clear effect, it's good to choose one that doesn't have a whole lot of downside. And TXA is probably a medication to that effect, similar to a, a histamine blockade. You're unlikely to harm your patient with TXA, but it's not been shown to be effective. And so I don't use it in my clinical practice. I've never used it uh, for a patient with angioedema. But that's just something to, to know that is out there and is discussed. But at present, there is no clearly proven medical therapy for patients with ACE-associated angioedema. You need to stop the medication. The patient needs to know that this is a class effect, so they should never be on an ACE inhibitor class of medication ever again in their life. Um, and in the acute setting, we just need to be sure that their airway is well-managed. So what I hear is that like my shift with this patient, angioedema will end, but we both have to get there. That's absolutely right. That's And so I heard you say expertly manage the airway, and that's what I'd really like to focus the remainder of our time on how am I going to assess this patient's airway? I, I'm, I'm looking at her and I see her lips are swollen. What other information do I need to make my decision and what options do we have? Absolutely. So in patients with angioedema, the most important decision that we make is whether or not we need to intubate the patient. And so an airway assessment becomes very important. In terms of the physical examination, there are really very few things that weigh in. The primary one being, where is the edema located? And then what level of extremis is our patient in? So you mentioned that our patient has lip angioedema on presentation, that's her chief complaint. It's interesting to note that some of the studies that are in the literature looking at angioedema and risk of intubation, they provide us with some classification systems. Probably the most well-known one is the ISSUE classification system. This was published in 1999 out of Boston Medical Center, and it was the otorhinolaryngology group. And they essentially categorized angioedema based on where it was located into four stages. So stage one being the lips, soft palate being stage two, stage three being the tongue, and stage four being the larynx. And of course, what they found was as we started getting into the tongue and the laryngeal involvement, we had a higher increase in need for intubation, and we had an increase in risk of going to the ICU as opposed to being managed either on the floor or the outpatient setting. So it's important to fully ascertain the anatomic location that the angioedema is involving. So we want to take a good look at the face. We want to look at the lips. We want to be very sure that we directly visualize the oropharynx. So you're looking at the tongue. Is the anterior tongue involved? Is the posterior tongue involved? Is there pharyngeal involvement or soft palate involvement or the sublingual space? And you just want to get a sense of how much involvement of the upper airway is present. Now, one thing that has been increasingly utilized in recent decades is nasolaryngoscopy. So using your nasopharyngoscope, either going through the nose or through the mouth, you can get a very good look at the supraglottic region or the larynx itself. And you just want to get a sense what is involved. Are the retinoid cartilages involved? Is the epiglottis Glottis involved, um, and we want to know is that larynx involved with angioedema because that's going to weigh in heavily in terms of whether or not we decide to manage the patient's airway. When we say the larynx is involved, we're asking the patient initially, 
Do you feel like your voice is different? Do you feel like it's hard to breathe? Is that what is leading us down the pathway to intubation stage four? Or is it our direct visualization? Are we looking at the cord specifically and saying those are swollen or is it just the surrounding tissues? I think you're really taking everything into account okay. as a clinician at the bedside. Um, there's no hard and fast criteria to determine which patients are going to need to be intubated. Essentially, the, the evidence that's in the literature would suggest that patients with dyspnea, that patients with base of tongue or laryngeal involvement uh, are going to have a higher likelihood of needing intubation. Patients who are having ACE-associated angioedema are going to have a higher likelihood of needing intubation. Um, but certainly not all of those patients need intubation. So you're taking a lot of, of information into account at the bedside. What has been the trajectory? Is this person still progressing and feeling like they're having more and more development of edema? Or is this patient relatively stable and they've been as they are for the past hour or so and they're relatively comfortable at the bedside? That person, you may be a lot more comfortable watching even if they do have some base of tongue or laryngeal involvement. And so you're taking into account the anatomic location, you're taking into account their sense of dyspnea and distress, and you're taking into account their progression, whether or not it's presently stable or it's still uh, moving forward. When I've talked to trainees about this and in other practice environments I worked at, I always add another factor and that is our ability to care for them as a team. Uh, when I was in a single, single doc, two nurse site, uh, VA hospital, I remember I would talk to patients that if this got worse, I don't have any backup folks to help me. So I think we should just go ahead and intubate now and then make sure that you're safe through the night. How do you, do you ever weigh that in? And to what degree does that factor into your decision-making? Absolutely. We're really fortunate here at Mayo Clinic Hospital to have a, a wealth of expertise in-house. We have ENT colleagues, expert anesthesia colleagues, our critical care medicine colleagues are very facile with airway management. And so my level of comfort watching a patient with angioedema here in Mayo Clinic Hospital is going to be very different than if I'm in a community site, single coverage, or if I'm transferring the patient over a long distance uh, where they're going to be uh, either in an air ambulance or the back of a rig uh, with a paramedic who doesn't have access to uh, fiber optic intubation equipment. And so that definitely plays into our decision because it's going to be advantageous to intubate our patient while they're stable and before the swelling gets worse. Uh, and so these are things that that do play in heavily. In a force to act situation, so you believe that this patient will be dead in five minutes if you don't act, what is your airway plan and how is that different than our patient who is sitting in front of us, talking to us, the voice is a little bit different. We take a look through the nose and things are starting to swell up down there and, and we predict that they need intubation, but they won't be dead in five minutes. What are our airway options? It's a great question. If you look at your clinical practice statements in the EM literature, essentially everything you read will say that you should avoid RSI and you should prioritize awake and endoscopic techniques, particularly nasal endoscopic techniques. Now, you mentioned the force to act situation. So this is the person who is coming with airway extremis. They appear that they're asphyxiating right in front of you. It's really important to consider that an awake endoscopic intubation is something that takes time. It takes time to set up, it takes time to prepare your patient, and it takes 
some element of patient cooperation to be able to participate in that procedure. So the patient who's in extremis, who either feels like or is asphyxiating in front of you, is not the patient that you're going to choose to proceed with an awake endoscopic approach. So while in general, we should be very hesitant to proceed with RSI in a patient with angioedema, because you don't wish to take away the airway reflexes of someone who is maintaining their airway reasonably well in the moment. There's a small subset of patients who are going to be coming with essentially a need for emergent airway management at the moment they arrive. And in that patient, it's my practice and my belief that we should give ourselves the best first attempt with a very well-articulated backup plan which is usually cricothyrotomy. So in that individual, they will receive automidate and a paralytic agent, either succinylcholine uh, or a non-depolarizing agent like rocuronium. And we will proceed with a videolaryngoscopic intubation, usually utilizing a bougie. And if we're unable to achieve intubation, we need to move essentially immediately to cricothyrotomy. Now, the flip side of that coin is the patient who's coming with significant angioedema, who clearly needs to be intubated, but they're maintaining their airway with reasonable patency, and you feel like you have some moments of time to really assess uh, what's going on and to prepare for a fiber optic intubation or an endoscopic intubation. Ben, I'd love to know, in that forced act situation, as you are going to the head of the bed, you have a healthcare team around you that is very nervous about what's about to happen and may disagree with your idea about doing RSI. What are you saying to them to help them understand why this is that very specific case of angioedema and not the 10 or 15 other angioedema cases where we did awake intubations? That's a great question, Bank. I, th I think the most important thing here is a shared mental model of what we're doing as a team. So when a patient comes in and they're an extremist, it's very important that the team understands where we are clinically. This is a patient who is asphyxiating. And if we don't act and achieve a secured airway within a matter of moments, they're going to die. And so having that well articulated in clear but calm fashion, so everyone understands this is what we're doing. We're administering RSI medications. One physician is going to take an initial first look with a videolaryngoscope and attempt intubation. And if that fails, we're going to move immediately to performing a cricothyrotomy. And everyone should be on the same page about this. This is something that we should also practice for. We should talk about before the actual scenario occurs. So when we are having our airway training with our residents uh, and our airway training with our faculty, this is something that should be discussed so that we all kind of have a shared understanding of, of how we manage these patients. This is very different than if we have time to prep the patient and prep the team for an awake nasotracheal intubation. Um, take us through that scenario, how you approach that room, how you educate the team about what's happening in that scenario. So if someone is presenting with angioedema and needs to be intubated as a result of their level of airway involvement, and I'm considering a awake nasopharyngeal intubation, this is generally someone who can engage with me as a patient. Um, so they are not in extremis, they are able to understand, and they're going to be able to cooperate. And so that means we have a, a little bit of time. So 
again, shared mental model is important. The room needs to understand exactly what's to happen. And we need to be well prepared for all of the potential ways this uh, procedure could go. So the first thing I will do is I will call my backup colleague. So this may be my emergency medicine colleague who is down the hall. This may be uh, in our practice, our anesthesia colleagues who serve as our airway backup, or it may be your surgical colleagues if you uh, would like to have a backup on hand uh, for a cricothyrotomy. In general, in our practice, we will call anesthesia as a backup. Emergency medicine almost categorically are the primary operators, but it's really handy to have a trusted colleague who really knows the equipment and is an expert at airway management there beside you in the event things go awry. Now, in terms of preparation of the patient, I'm a firm believer that the patient needs to have a clear understanding of what you're about to perform on them. So I'm very clear with them in terms of why I'm performing the procedure and what's about to happen. So they're in understanding that they have significant swelling that could be life-threatening if we don't intervene upon it. They understand that this is going to be somewhat uncomfortable and that I need their cooperation and that I'm gonna do my very best and talk them through the procedure as it goes. Topicalization with anesthetic, specifically lidocaine, is very important. So these patients in general, I will intubate through the nose. So you're going to be administering some medication nasally uh, that's a vasoconstrictive, either oxymetazoline or phenylephrine. And then you're going to be administering lidocaine. And in general, if you can atomize the lidocaine, you're going to have a better uptake on the mucosal surfaces. Certainly, we can nebulize the lidocaine. However, the nebulizer is really intended to get that lidocaine into the lungs and not under the mucosal surfaces. So as much as you can atomize or use topical lidocaine, that's probably going to be your best option for really getting things nice and numb. I personally like to place the endotracheal tube into the nose and into the nasopharynx before introducing the nasopharyngoscope or the endoscope. And I use that as a conduit in order to pass my scope. I think pragmatically this is also really helpful because if you do happen to pass your scope all the way down into the carina and then find yourself in a scenario where you can't pass the tube into the nose because of how tight um, the nasal passage is, uh, that's a really bad feeling because you're exactly where you need to be and now you can't get the tube to pass the nose. So I've never had this happen to me. <laughs> it sounds like that maybe has happened in the past. So, so you know, I'll, I'll assess the patient's uh, nose um, kind of a, at the outset and get a sense of which side is more patent. Um, sometimes I'll use my pinky finger to pass uh, into the nose and see which side uh, is going to be more accepting of the endotracheal tube. You can then utilize NP airways, which are more soft and more pliable than your endotracheal tube, uh, to kind of upsize and dilate that hazel passage, and you can lubricate those with viscous lidocaine to also be anesthetizing the nose at the same time. Do you have a goal dilation that you want to get to? You know, in terms of the goal, the, the most important thing is that you can get the tracheal tube that you wish to have in the patient's nose well seated. In general, I will choose a 7-0 endotracheal tube, and, and that's pragmatically because the 7-0 endotracheal tubes in our emergency department are 30 centimeters, and as I move down to a 6-5, they become 28 centimeter length tubes, which start to become a little bit short for doing a nasopharyngeal intubation. So if you have time, or if you have that specific equipment already on hand, or an anesthesia colleague who can grab it, there are specific nasal 
tracheal intubation devices, uh, tracheal tubes, uh, which they can grab and, and bring down. But in terms of the, the usual equipment that we have on hand in a, a standard emergency department setting, your 7.0 endotracheal tubes are going to be two centimeters longer than your 6.5 endotracheal tube. So I, I will try to go for a 7.0 endotracheal tube into the nose, and I'll pass that to about 14 or 15 centimeters. That's essentially the same length as an NP airway. So the patient generally tolerates that very well. Now you have a conduit that is already placed in the patient's nose through which you can pass your endoscope. Once the endoscope is passed, hopefully you're going to be coming out right above the glottis. And as you're above the glottis with your endoscope, you can utilize the working channel of the endoscope to pass more lidocaine. And you can essentially douse the glottis with lidocaine uh, and attempt to get them as anesthetized as possible prior to passing the glottis uh, and entering the trachea. Ben, a couple of specific questions. We talked about lidocaine. Uh, what percentage are you using? And when we're talking about topicalization, I understand we have nebulization and we have atomization. How are you specifically atomizing? Uh, we have a couple of devices and, and what structures are you visualizing while you do that? That's a great question. In terms of percentage of lidocaine, I typically use the 2% lidocaine solution that I will atomize. You can certainly get 4% lidocaine solutions, or you can utilize the 1%. Um, but in our emergency department, we have the 2% readily on hand, and so that's frequently what I'll utilize. The topical lidocaine preparation, specifically the viscous lidocaine, is also really helpful if you can pass something past the base of the tongue, and essentially, um, you know, you're putting this either uh, jelly or cream onto the base of the tongue so that it kind of drips down into the back into the piriform recesses uh, and starts to get their superglottic region well anesthetized. In terms of atomizing lidocaine, there are several devices that are commercially available. Um, we have two in our department. One uh, is specific for the nose. It looks like a little cone. It goes on top of a syringe um, and essentially atomizes the solution uh, into the nasal passages. So I have the patient breathe in deeply, I'm atomizing the nose, and this is after I have passed either oxymetazoline or phenylephrine uh, as a vasodilator. In terms of atomizing into the oropharynx, there's also a device that is called the magic device. It's like a long tube and it's flexible and you can essentially bend it to the shape that you want it. So I will try to, if I can, visualize the oropharyngeal structures and just spray with the atomizer those oropharyngeal structures. And then I'll put a 90 degree curve on the device. I'll pass it beyond the tongue so it's essentially pointing down at the glottis. You can't see it, but you know it's there. And you're essentially going to, again, spray and atomize into the piriform recesses, just uh, all about the supraglottic area. And patients generally tolerate this pretty well. The main thing that is uh, a potential uh, challenge in your angioedema a patient is if the tongue is so big that you can't pass anything into the mouth. And this frequently happens with our angioedema patients, um, that the tongue is just plastered to the roof of the mouth. And so you're, you're not going to be passing anything into the nose. In that scenario, passing the lidocaine through your endoscope after you pass into the pharynx uh, becomes very important. Now, uh, we jumped right into topicalization, but 
Take me through how you set up in terms of medications for this patient beforehand. Now, medications is a, I think, is a really nuanced question. So, um, secretions can be a big deal when you're performing an endoscopic airway procedure. And so, if you have time, administering glycopyrrolate uh, anywhere from 0.1 to 0.4 uh, milligrams IV can help reduce secretions. And that will probably have an onset of around five to 10 minutes and will last for 30 minutes to an hour. So if you have time, administering glycopyrrolate can be additive. Um, but I do think that you have to be cautious because we have limited team resources in the emergency department. And there are lots of things that need to be going on and happening as we're preparing for and conducting an endoscopic airway technique, particularly on someone who is presently stable, but you feel like you have a you know a limited amount of time to get this procedure performed. So I'm going to be weighing in my mind, do I have the team bandwidth to send a nurse for a medication such as glycopyrrolate, or are we going to just be moving forward without it? So stop the crike and give the glyco is what I hear. <laughs> I, I don't know that that's exactly what I said. The the other medications that were you know mentioned and we frequently think about, so anxiolysis or dissociative medications. So should we be giving things like Versed? Should we be administering ketamine? The vast majority of awake endoscopic intubations that I have performed in my career have been essentially without any sedative or dissociative medication. It's a highly selected patient population of someone who has angioedema, but they need to be intubated. They're stable enough to participate with the procedure, and I'm performing excellent topicalization of the airway, and I'm walking them through the procedure. Now, some patients are going to tolerate that pretty well, some patients are not and may need to have some medication uh, to essentially help them tolerate it. Uh, ketamine is probably the most utilized medication in this setting. And what you don't want to do is hit them with a big slug of dissociative dose ketamine. You want to be cautious and administering small aliquots and essentially get them to the point that they're able to tolerate the procedure. So you might choose to give 20 or 30 milligrams of ketamine uh, and essentially incrementally give more. Um, and all the while you're monitoring, how is this affecting their ability to maintain their airway? How is this affecting their ability to tolerate this procedure? I think one of the most helpful procedures as you're thinking about conducting an awake intubation is your interaction with the patient. So your ability to demonstrate a sense of calm, a sense of composure, and to essentially relay to the patient that you and the team have this and you're going to be walking them through it. It's not going to be the most comfortable thing, and it's not going to be uh, without its element of fear, uh, but you're taking them through it, you're doing it together. And um, it's been my experience that a vast majority of patients will respond very well to that, but it requires a very deliberate interaction with the patient to help get them on board and essentially to bring them in as a member of the team. Because if you're going to be keeping them awake and topicalized while performing the procedure, um, they need to have an understanding of what's going on so that they can uh, meaningfully participate uh, and, and give you the best chance of success. Another medication that goes through my mind and I have very limited experience with is dexmedetomidine. I've also heard about ketofol in small aliquots for these patients. Have you had any experience with either of those options? That's a great question. You know, both of those uh, would be potential uh, options. Um, I, I would say I would be very hesitant with using 
ketophol or really propofol in any fashion just because of the potential for diminishing the patient's intrinsic airway reflexes. Um, you know, I think that uh, you you would run the chance of getting into the weeds with that. Um, Dexmedetomidine is certainly one that would uh, be more reasonable in this setting. Um, we do use it in our department. Um, I've never used it for this purpose. Um, but again, as I'm thinking about a person who is going to need an awake endoscopic intubation, um, I'm really thinking about keeping them awake as best I can. And so, uh, you know, I, I do think it's something you could have in your, in your arsenal, um, but uh, it's, it's not something I personally have experience with in this setting. Another pretreatment that I sometimes give is ondansetron. What are your thoughts on pretreating for nausea? Yeah. You know, most of these folks will not have true nausea. Maybe you're going to stimulate a gag reflex, um, but I'm, I'm not clear the uh, Dancetron is going to help a whole lot with that. Um, I haven't found too much of an issue with emesis in this setting uh, personally. Now, when we looked at the NEAR database uh, and we looked specifically at angioedema patients, we did find that there were a few, uh, so out of uh, about 98% of patients who had intubation for angioedema, uh, there were one or two who had vomiting in that group. So it's pretty rare, but you're not going to be harming people by administering some preemptive Zofram. But certainly the team allocation, like you mentioned, is important too. Absolutely. Ben, give me a sense of how common angioedema is in general in the community. And then of that group, how often are we intubating them? Angioedema in general uh, is is pretty uh, rarely seen in the emergency department. Uh, essentially, it accounts for one out of every thousand ED visits. Um, so you're looking at about 110,000 visits to, to U.S. EDs every year. And in terms of uh, the rate of intubation, that's been variable in the literature, but it's probably about somewhere between 7 and 12% of those individuals who present to emergency departments who are needing to have their airways managed. In our population, it was 7% of our all comers with angioedema. In some studies, it's been a little higher than that. Certainly when you look at studies that are case series of patients who are in the ICU or who even are admitted to the hospital, you're gonna see higher numbers, uh, so in the 20s and 30s. But if you look at all comers who come to the emergency department for angioedema, including those that are ultimately discharged at home, you're looking at about seven to 10% of individuals who are going to need to have their airways managed. A couple things that I've run into that seem to trip my team and myself up. Sometimes the endoscope becomes foggy. How do you troubleshoot that? Yeah, so um, you know, the endoscope being a, a cold device that we're putting into a, a warm environment that's humid is going to kind of naturally become foggy. Um, there, there are actually just commercially available solutions that you can uh, squirt on a sponge, dab your endoscope right on top of it, and and then it's essentially a defogging solution. So we have that in our emergency department. It lives with all of the endoscopic equipment, and um, that's what I would recommend primarily. Um, if you forget to do that uh, and you're in the middle of your procedure and you get foggy or, or if you have done that and you get foggy still, uh, you can gently just kind of dab the tip of your endoscope onto a moist mucosal surface and hopefully that's going to be enough to clear your, your endoscope and allow you to visualize well enough to complete the procedure. That makes sense. Are there other things that you've heard of being the person everyone goes to with airway issues that seem to trip up teams and individuals when doing awake fiber optic intubations? Absolutely. That's a great question. I think the most important thing is our ability to be clear 
about what's about to happen. What are the roles? What is the plan? What is the backup plan? And just how do we as a team have that shared mental model? Where things really start to get off the tracks is when we call backup colleagues and we say, hey, I've got an angioedema patient down here. Click, phone hangs up. If you get that call right now, what's going through your mind? I got to run right now. Yeah, and you're thinking you're gonna, I need to come intubate this patient. Whereas if you make a call and you say to your colleague, hey, I have an angioedema patient down here. This is the scenario. We're planning to do an awake endoscopic intubation. My senior resident's setting up for it right now. Our backup's gonna be a crike. I really just need to have you on hand as my backup because I need a, an extra set of expertise here. You're, you're feeling as you enter that room and your expectation for what you're about to do is very different. And that is all going to be impacted by how you, as the leader of the team, articulate the plan, how you call your backup colleagues. It's about how you carry and compose yourself. And so I think that's where we go wrong most is that we don't have a very intentional setting of a shared mental model with our team and our backup colleagues and kind of everyone we're pulling in to take care of this patient. It's interesting you say that because as I reflect on that case that I handed off to you, I walked away and I told my spouse, who's also in medicine, I was blown away by how calm and composed and confident you were in every interaction with the patient and the team. And I think you're exactly right. You've mentioned a few times now, the patient has to have trust in you and you're gonna walk them through this and you're articulating everything and you're mentioning it for the colleagues that you're calling in and the team around you. It's something I observed in you. Well, thanks for sharing that. And I'm glad it, it does come off that way. And the the important thing to know is it's it's easy to have confidence when you surround yourself with excellent colleagues. And so having excellent colleagues, having people who know their role, who you know are aware of what their role in this uh, particular uh, patient care episode is, um, it, it makes all the difference. If you're out in a critical access setting and it's only you, I think that becomes a lot more challenging of a scenario. And, and really, you know, those are ones where you have to be, you know, very clear with yourself. What is my level of competence with these procedures that I'm about to embark on? Being sure you have excellent, well-delineated, well-thought-out backup plans um, that you know when you hit a point where something's not going well, that you can make that transition and move to what needs to happen, you know, whether it be a cricothyrotomy uh, or something of that nature. Because where we really get in the weeds with airway procedures is sometimes we'll just continue on and perseverate with the path we've chosen. So the patient is becoming hypoxemic. We're continuing to try, to try, to try. And really what we need to do is admit that, nope, this isn't going well. Some people will even try to avoid using the word failed airway because just as humans, we don't like failing. We don't like to admit failing. Uh, I personally I, th- I think it's fine to call it a failed airway as long as you're okay moving into that space and saying, okay, I'm failing here. We're going to move right along to a crike. Um, but some will call it the inevitable surgical airways. Just so you get that that mental model that, hey, if this isn't working in the next you know 20 seconds, this is now an inevitably surgical airway and we're moving along. But where we really go wrong is if we fail to recognize our 
our failure. And so then you have a patient that's becoming more and more hypoxemic. Uh, we're on a fast path to a PEA arrest from hypoxemia. Ben, before we close, one thing we haven't talked about is, can any of these patients go home? Who needs to stay in our observation unit? Who needs to go to the ICU or a general floor? Do you have any approach to this? Absolutely. So patients with angioedema who come to the emergency department, the vast majority of them are going to be dispositioned to home. Uh, but there certainly are individuals who we are going to need to admit and observe or admit because we've managed their airway. Most patients who have angioedema that's isolated either to the face or to the lips or even the soft palate, ultimately those individuals, if that is their most concerning area of involvement, they're going to be able to disposition to home once their angioedema starts to recede, once they appear to be moving in the right direction. In the ISSUE study, they essentially found that 100% of patients who had laryngeal involvement were observed in their intensive care units. And for people who had tongue involvement, almost 70% of them were in, observed in intensive care units. Interestingly, in our study at Mayo Clinic Hospital, which again occurred about two decades later, only about 30% of people who had a maximum stage of tongue involvement and only 75% of people who had a maximum stage of laryngeal involvement required ICU level of care. And that's because we're utilizing ED observation units more and more for patients with angioedema. So when the issue study came out in 1999, ED observation units weren't really a thing. And now we're using observation units much more effectively, not just for our cardiac patients, uh, but for patients with angioedema. So for someone who has either tongue or even laryngeal involvement, but they're stable, perhaps they're improving, and your observation unit is close to where we are as emergency practitioners and airway providers, it's very reasonable to con consider observing them if their trajectory is such that you think that they're ultimately going to be able to go home if their improvement continues. But the important thing is to be sure they're observed in a location that should they worsen, we can rapidly act to secure the patient's airway. For those who are going home, there are a couple of important considerations. Most importantly, if we think this is ACE-associated angioedema, we have to discontinue the ACE inhibitor, and we have to tell patients they, they should never be on uh, ACE inhibitor class medication again. All of these patients should probably have referral to an allergist, um, unless they just know already already what their angioedema syndrome is. So if it's someone who has hereditary angioedema and they're coming with hereditary angioedema, um, you know, that's one thing. But if they're having a new onset angioedema syndrome, uh, that patient probably deserves to be seen by an allergist in the outpatient setting. Lastly, if it's histaminergic or if it's unknown, these patients should go home with an epinephrine autoinjector. So this is something we should be prescribing for them and they should be picking up immediately after discharge from the ED. Are there any blood tests that are valuable in these patients? That's a great question. There are no blood tests that are gonna change your management as an emergency provider in the acute care setting. However, there are blood tests that might change the management of the patient as an allergist or primary care physician is trying to determine what is the etiology of the angioedema. Specifically, if we're trying to determine if it is or is not histaminergic, a tryptase is a test that we can send in the immediate setting during the event. And if elevated, that's gonna lean us towards thinking this is histaminergic. A C4 level is another uh, potential test. If we're concerned, they might have a hereditary angioedema syndrome or an acquired angioedema syndrome. So in patients 
who have a C1 esterase inhibitor deficiency, we're going to expect that they have a low C4 level in the setting of an acute event, whereas patients with an ACE inhibitor-associated syndrome, they're going to have normal C4 levels at that time. And so it's not going to change your management in the acute care setting, but if you want to help out your colleagues uh, and really help get a diagnosis for the patient, it's reasonable to consider sending. You know, Ben, when I think about angioedema, I tend to imagine the person with swollen lips and tongue that scares me at night. Is that how it only presents, or are there other versions of angioedema that we should be aware of? That's a great question. So the hereditary angioedema syndromes actually very commonly will present with intestinal angioedema. So as a result of their submucosal swelling, they'll get uh, intestine wall swelling. You know, normally the intestinal wall on CT is going to be about three millimeters, and now we're going to see it on the order of centimeters. And some patients will even go to XLAP for emergency kind of exploratory operations because of their severe abdominal pain. So that's one of the most common presentations of hereditary angioedema folks. And it's been described in ACE-associated angioedema, but it's it's far less common. So all to say that um, you know the ones that we typically see and think of in the ED do involve the airway, but when someone is coming with recurrent and unexplained abdominal pain and they happen to be on an ACE inhibitor, uh, or if they have a known hereditary syndrome, um, that's something we should actually really have on our differential diagnosis. Um, other places where it can present but probably doesn't impact us as much in the emergency department setting would be the extremities or the genitals. Um, particularly, the hereditary angioedema patients um, can have a predilection for extremity involvement, genital involvement. And um, so there we're going to be administering targeted therapies, uh, but clearly we're not going to be um, as worried about managing the airway in those folks. Ben, this is incredibly valuable and there's so much nuance. The richness that you bring to the airway in all settings shines through. Some of us who are not as comfortable might need a more simplified version. Is there a simple summary you could provide on how to handle angioedema from the airway perspective? Absolutely. If, if I'm thinking from the realm of the emergency medicine provider, the first thing is the airway. It's first and foremost with your angioedema patients. So as a patient arrives, we're making a clinical decision, do I need to manage this patient's airway? The next question is going to become, is this individual experiencing anaphylaxis? And if anaphylaxis is present with angioedema, we know how to treat that. We're giving epinephrine and we're giving that intramuscularly 0.3 to 0.5. If it's not anaphylaxis, I'm asking myself, is this histamine-mediated angioedema with no anaphylaxis? And if that's the case, and it's life-threatening involving the airway, I'm again administering epinephrine. It's very straightforward. If it's unknown, I'm going to treat it like it's histamine-mediated angioedema because chances are that it might be, and we have effective treatment for histamine-mediated angioedema in epinephrine. If it's not histamine-mediated, and if it's not unknown, that implies that I believe this is bradykinin-mediated or non-histaminergic angioedema. And that really comes in two flavors for us in the emergency department. One is the hereditary angioedema patient who generally will know that they have hereditary angioedema. And the other is the ACE inhibitor-associated angioedema patient. If they have hereditary angioedema syndromes, I'm going to be looking at one of my three specific hereditary angioedema medications, either C1 esterase inhibitor concentrate, acalantide, 
or a catamount, and that's going to depend very much on your institution, which one they carry. If it's not hereditary, then we're likely in the realm of ACE associated. And this is what we're going to deal with most in the emergency department. The vast majority will be ACE inhibitor associated. And these patients, we're going to be managing the airway and we're going to be discontinuing the ACE inhibitor. And I'm not going to think too much about the other medications because the literature does not presently support their use. Ben, as we wind down our discussion today, we have a broad listener group. They're rural, they're academic centers, they're in the US, they're abroad. Any final thoughts or comments that I didn't ask or Alex didn't ask that you want them to know? Yeah, I would recommend that anyone who's in emergency medicine, uh, just take a quick look at the, the two more recent consistent consensus statements that are out in the literature, because I think it just really guides our thought process for how we care for angioedema patients. So one is from Molman and colleagues in 2014. This is the SAEM consensus statement. Uh, and it essentially has a very nice layout of how we as an emergency provider should think about angioedema, how we should organize our thoughts, and what is the evidence-based care for these patients. The other more recent consensus statement is provided by the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. And this one is Rosenbaum et al. It's in Journal of Emergency Medicine in 2021. And both of these are reasonably short. They're very well organized. And it gives us a sense of what does the literature presently say is the evidence-based appropriate care for the angioedema patient coming to the emergency department. So um, this is something that I would recommend, you know, anyone who practices in an emergency care setting, just have an understanding of what's stated here. Ben, thank you so much for spending the morning with us. You have taken a situation that is naturally intimidating for us as emergency care providers and really empowered us with an approach and a depth of understanding about angioedema and the procedure of awake tracheal intubation that we can use on our very next shift. Thank you. Folks, how about that to end the first season? Dr. Sandifer is truly amazing. And as always, please like, comment, and follow our show on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Be sure to check out the Grand Rounds release that's coming mid-December too, and stick with us because we have a lot of great stuff coming in the next year. Maybe even a new look. The new year is a great time to start following us on Twitter and Instagram at alwaysonem or to shoot us an email anytime you want. We have some great giveaways planned for the coming year, including some of our personal books that we're planning to autograph and share with you all. So please check it out. That's a wrap on 2022 for the inaugural season of Always on EM. To each of you listening, thank you for being the most important part of this adventure for Alex and me. We hope that you have a wonderful and safe end to 2022 and happy holidays. The Always On EM podcast hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Bellamconda. 